Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The following floretry selection is in memory of the teachings of Hazrat Abu Sayyid. May God be pleased with him. Saints of God are not people who are absent from the world, but will do some of the same things as me and you. Yet there's a sign that serves as a clue to the focus that sets them apart. God's zikr is always in their heart. They know that life's delights are empty in the absence of presence. The key to essential purpose, and they see that if one wishes to be happy, person must be ready to die, to abandon once without a sigh. Dusty books by which we think we know must be thrown into fires that glow with coals of purity that bestow understanding to which we may go towards the origin of lasting truths that don't depend on rational proofs. Step away from self and retire to a journey that will require you to always seek what is higher than lowly desires which expire when life stops. Exchange things for the friend whose love and compassion do not end. To grasp that one is really nothing is not easy to do, so just sing the praises of God and this may bring one to one's senses. Yet if we cling to ego's call, our journey may stall before an impenetrable wall. We in our darkness believe we're free to attain to the highest degree of spirituality, to be like gods. In truth, we are just lowly beggars, hoping for droplets of grace, so we might know our essential face. We have no right to say I, to feel that actions which come through us reveal that which is real. Surface selves conceal the one true self and place a thick seal over the soul's potential to know, where just waves move by God's undertow. Our intentions towards God are not pure, and such motivations need a cure that can detach them from the allure of delusions that make us so sure we are right when we're totally wrong, mesmerized with the folly of Naf's song. 
the false self practices its hard sell like a conjurer casting a spell so that one won't be able to tell the true from the false and thereby dwell in a state of relativity amidst stations of depravity. The source of all my troubles is me, who believes it is a deity, and is deaf to divinity's plea to be open to listen, to see that God's reality is just one, and only through God do we become. title of the following short story is Dependence. Many people considered the man to be a very spiritual individual. He prayed a great deal, fasted as often as circumstances permitted, kept night vigils during which he continuously sang the praises of divinity, went on various journeys to sacred landmarks, and tried to lead a good life, including being as charitable and kind as he could towards one and all. The man himself was fairly humble, but he did take his religious pursuits very seriously. Currently, he was attempting to struggle with a spiritual condition in which developing a dependence on divinity was of fundamental importance. One day he was walking in the forest, which he liked to do because of his love for nature and the way all of creation reminded him of the Creator. The area was new to him, which he also liked since he enjoyed exploration and being exposed to diverse experiences. Suddenly his nose twitched with the first whiff of a harbinger that wafted through the air, smoke. At first he thought there might be a campsite or cabin nearby that was generating what he was smelling. However, there was not only far too much smoke for it to be from a simple campfire or a camp chimney, but also he began to see different creatures of the forest scattering in different directions. Not a good sign. Above the sound of a small river that ran through the forest, the man could hear the distinct crackle, pop, and roar of a substantial fire. He began to be concerned. Based on the nature of the smoke in the air, he thought he knew where the main body of the fire might be located. However, he wasn't sure. Forest fires were tricky customers. They jumped from place to place, sometimes with alarming speed. Furthermore, one couldn't always trust one's immediate senses in such circumstances. Wind currents, atmospheric conditions, and the geographical properties of the area where a fire was raging could all affect how the fire burned and where it went. Consequently, one easily could misread the signs. One's eyes, ears, and nose might induce one to believe one was heading towards safety. Nonetheless, despite what one's senses seemed to be telling one, one could run smack into the very thing one was trying to avoid. The man was facing some additional problems. Not only wasn't he very familiar with the surrounding terrain, but somehow he had become lost and disoriented while wandering about. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem. It had happened with him before, and usually given enough time and effort, he always had managed to find his way back to familiar ground. 
but he didn't have the luxury of time. Which way should he go? The man did not panic. He composed himself, knowing his best chance to survive was to remain calm and thoughtful about the situation. Furthermore, he had been trained by his spiritual mentors to respond to the crises and problems of life by always seeking divine assistance. Consequently, he said a quick prayer while trying to come to a reasoned and speedy decision about what to do. One should always depend on divinity for help, yet this dependence needed to be balanced with trying to do whatever one could to help oneself. Indeed, an old cowboy he once read about used to say, One needs to trust in God, but son, don't forget to tie your horse. He felt, as a first step, that he should move towards the river, so he began quickly walking in the general direction of where he believed the water to be. A short while later, he was on the bank of the river, a river that was neither large nor small. There was a bend in the river at this point. Trees from both sides were hanging over the water, making it difficult to get clear information about where the fire might be. As he was looking downstream, he heard a voice hail him. A woman in a canoe was coming down the river. She was heading towards the bank where he stood, and she said, Come on, get in. We'll be able to paddle our way out of trouble. The man hesitated. He considered the possibility that following the river downstream might not be the right way to go. Something within him seemed to suggest that trouble would very well be the only thing which he might find downstream. He waved the woman off, saying, No, I do not believe that is the way divinity wishes me to go. The woman was first concerned that the man seemed to be refusing her help and then shrugged. She was worried about saving her own skin as well, so she began paddling away from shore and picked up speed when she hit the main current. The man started to walk upstream following the riverbank. However, since there was a lot of overgrowth and bog areas along the bank, sometimes he had to detour to a path that ran along a small ridge which rose above the shore area. On one of these occasions, he came to a place where the path forked off in another direction. Coming towards him were several young hikers who met him at the fork. They had been running and were out of breath, but as one of them caught his breath, he said, "'You better come with us, mister. We've just come from upstream and conditions may be worsening there. We have some knowledge of these woods, and we think our best chance to escape the fire will be to cut across the forest to a pond on the other side. But we better hurry. There may not be much of a window of opportunity for us to be able to safely make it through.' The man looked at the boys and considered their youth. Maybe they were Boy Scouts or kids with a certain amount of wilderness survival skills, but they just seemed to be far too young for him to be willing to entrust his life with what they might or might not know. However, wishing to place the matter in God's hand, the man looked into his heart for some sign about what to do. Nothing seemed to jump out at him, one way or the other. He tried to persuade the boys that they all should stick with the river and keep heading upstream. Staying close to the water might be the wisest thing to do under the circumstances. The boys disagreed with him and started running up the path that traversed the forest and led to a pond. He watched them disappear around the corner. Once again, he headed back down to the lower river bank and kept working his way upstream. A short while later, he came upon a man who was sitting on an all-terrain vehicle 
inspecting the other bank of the river. The man on the ATV was looking downstream as he lowered a flask from which he had been drinking. He seemed to be inebriated. He offered the new arrival a ride. The plan was to cross the river at this point since the man on the ATV believed the river was fairly shallow here. In addition, the man on the ATV felt the fire hadn't jumped to the other side yet. Looking at the flask in the ATV man's hand and smelling alcohol in his breath as the former gentleman outlined a plan for crossing the river, the man without transportation was uncertain about how to proceed. Once again, he concentrated on his heart, hoping to discern some flicker of intuition or feeling that would inform him about what decision should be made. Still, nothing out of the ordinary was detectable. Presumably, this meant he should continue on as he had been doing. He wished the man on the ATV good luck and continued to travel upstream. When he looked back, the ATV had just reached the other bank and was heading up a path that led away from the river. For another five minutes, he walked upstream. Sometimes he did so along the bank and sometimes he walked along the path running parallel to the river, but which was 10 or 15 feet inland. At one point, the man came upon a firefighter who was sitting down, coughing, apparently overcome somewhat by the after-effects of smoke inhalation. His face was painted with charcoal stains mixed with sweat and some blood. The firefighter looked up, saw the man approaching, and with difficulty tried to rise. The man helped the firefighter to his feet. The firefighter coughed, tried to catch his breath, and when he did, pointed towards an area of woods running diagonally away from the river in an easterly direction, saying, The fire cut me off from my crew. If we move in that direction, I'm pretty sure we will reach safety. There are some helicopters in a clearing not too far away from here that will be able to lift us to safety. If you'll help me, I'll show you the way because it's easy to miss the right cutoff. The firefighter seemed to know what he was doing. On the other hand, he had been cut off from his crew, and who knows what mistakes and judgment had led to that separation. Wishing to depend on God's guidance, he closed his eyes and focused within. He concentrated for only a few seconds when a light shone in his mind's eye, and there seemed to be a voice emanating from the light. It said, Look, you already have been given two ways out of this mess, and you're not going to get any more help than you have been given. The man was both startled and elated by his experience. He also was mystified. Thinking back, he recalled meeting the woman in the canoe, the two hikers, the drunken man on the ATV, and now the firefighter. If he had been given two ways to safety, what did the other events mean? In response to the man's thoughts, the voice associated with the internal light replied, two of the ways you encountered were choreographed by an adversary of divinity who was seeking your destruction. But which two, the man wondered. How was he supposed to know? Moreover, hadn't he tried on each occasion to discern the path that God wished him to take? He was confused. His sense of confusion was responded to with further words from the light within. When you finally learn to really depend on divine assistance, you won't be plagued with these questions and doubts. You'll know with certainty what to do, and spiritual certainty is something very different from merely being convinced that one is right. In fact, the light continued on, there was once a servant of divinity 
who was so steeped in the station of dependence that despite not having eaten for days, nonetheless, when someone wanted to give him four loaves of bread, he refused since God had promised him five. Therefore he knew the present offer was not the one which divinity wished him to take. So until you develop this level of confidence in depending on your Lord, why don't you help this firefighter who is someone who knows what he's doing and let him guide you to safety? The title of the following musical interlude is Nice Work.
from one tiny desk on a relatively small planet in a solar system that forms a speck in a galaxy that exists along with billions of other galaxies amidst spatial voids tens of millions of light years across on a material plane that constitutes but one of many realms in God's indefinitely large universe. You are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. For the past several weeks, I've included an announcement in the Sufi Reverberations Podcast that talks about the free download of a software package entitled Bridge. Those announcements allude to a Patreon project with which I am associated. The purpose of that project is to raise money to underwrite the costs of gifting books to different libraries in North America. The books that are to be gifted consist of the 40 books that I have written over the last several decades, and the subject matter of those books covers an array of topics, from Islam and the Sufi path, to religion, education, constitutional law, spiritual abuse, sharia, quantum physics, cosmology, evolution, psychology, political science, medicine, and 9-11. More than 45 years ago, during a textbook prejudice campaign conducted in Canada, in which I participated shortly after stepping on to the Sufi path, I learned that most people in North America have a very poor and often distorted understanding of Islam as well as the Sufi mystical tradition. My Patreon gifting project seeks to help alleviate the aforementioned sort of ignorance by gifting quality research materials that are written from an Islamic and a Sufi perspective. You can find out more about this project by visiting https colon backslash backslash www dot anab a n a b hyphen white house w h i t e h o u s e dot com and click on the menu three option of the drop down menus and then click on Patreon. The following essay is entitled, Aspirations. There are three general categories of aspiration within us. Normally, only one of these is spiritual in character, and this spiritual aspiration is opposed by, and in conflict with, expressions of the other two categories, namely, passion and anger. The Sufi path involves three broad sets of transformation with respect to aspirations. One set of transformations entails reforming passion and anger so they become spiritual allies instead of liabilities. The other two sets of transformations consist of the purification and perfection of spiritual aspiration, especially in relation to the nature of the modalities or spiritual instruments through which we engage our relationship with God. All three sets of transformations involve changes in the character of the quote-unquote object towards which aspiration is directed. In addition, a transition in the degree of intensity of aspiration occurs in all three transformational sets. More specifically, This change in intensity revolves around the process 
of becoming less dispersed and more gathered in our intentions, awareness, understanding, and behavior. Although human beings are born with all three categories of aspiration, very shortly after birth, for most of us, passion and anger begin to dominate our lives, while spiritual aspiration is marginalized and relegated to the background. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, the unfolding of spirituality, to the extent it occurs at all, lags significantly behind the unfolding of passion and anger. Passion encompasses all those tendencies within us which seek to acquire. These acquisitive predispositions are directed towards procuring more and more material possessions, power, money, fame, status, and physical gratifications of one description or another. Anger includes all the inclinations within each of us which are directed towards defending the passions against anything constituting a threat to past, present, or future acquisitions. Hostility, antagonism, malice, conflict, and rebellion are all expressions of anger in action. If one looks carefully at the situations in which these different modalities of anger arise, one will detect the existence of one or more vested interests of passion at the heart of the issue. By dominating consciousness, intentions, motivations, thinking, attitudes, evaluations, judgments, and behavior, the activities of anger and passion create the illusion of a self which is being served by such activity. In other words, our awareness is mesmerized or a state of hypnosis is induced in consciousness by the activities of anger and passions. As a result, awareness identifies with them as being possessions of and acting on behalf of consciousness. Over time, a history of experiences, decisions, and behaviors is generated. Memories are recorded and used by passion and anger to serve their respective agendas. This entire ensemble of passion, anger, mesmerized awareness, and remembered life history are the primary forces which underwrite the existence of the false self or ego. All aspirations which arise in the context of this ensemble are seen as aspirations of the illusory self. This self has no substantive quality or reality per se. In other words, this self has no existence prior to its invention or construction. The false self or ego is merely an arrangement of convenience and circumstance. It is an artificial business arrangement that has been organized by our various modalities of passion and anger for purposes of carrying on different kinds of commercial transactions with the world. Our God-given capacity for choice is usurped by the false self-conglomerate. Due to the state of hypnotic trance of ordinary consciousness, the process of exercising free will within our capacity to do so is arrogated to the false self through the manipulations, seductions, and pressure tactics of passion and anger. Judgments, decisions, and choices begin to get locked into interacting patterns or habits. 
These patterns reflect and conform to the collective dynamics of the various components of the false self or ego. Exoteric values, practices, and rituals have two important tasks to perform with respect to the ego conglomerate that has arisen. On the one hand, exoteric teachings try to help the individual close the gap between spiritual aspirations, which for the most part have lagged behind in development, and the dominant influence enjoyed by the aspirations of passion and anger in our day-to-day -day lives. On the other hand, exoteric teachings try to help the individual bring passion and anger into an acceptable spiritual balance. The excesses and extremes of passion and anger must be constrained. A middle way of moderation must be discovered which will prevent the individual from transgressing beyond certain boundaries of spiritual propriety. Acquisitiveness and its protector must be trained to pursue their activities within divinely sanctioned parameters of permissibility. Exoteric teachings seek to strengthen the dimension of spiritual aspiration within the individual. At the same time, these teachings provide a framework of moderation which is intended to constrain passion and anger provided the framework is implemented by our developing spiritual aspiration. If our spiritual aspiration becomes sufficiently mature, then God willing, it begins to influence our capacity for choice. Over time, if everything goes well, we begin to discontinue some of the more injurious patterns of behavior generated through our aspirations of passion and anger. The Sufi path is not content to merely constrain passion and anger. It seeks to transform them. One of the themes of such transformation is to induce, through Sufi discipline, practices, and so on, the individual to change the character of the object which is the focus of passion and anger. Instead of using anger and passion to seek the world, these two modalities of aspiration should be used to seek divinity. However, in order to have a chance of succeeding in achieving the transition in focus from worldly objects to divinity, passion and anger cannot remain as they are. The intention underlying them must change, and as well, passion and anger must come under the sphere of influence of all of the qualities of spiritual etiquette. Intention must become a servant of God. Everything which is done must be done for the love of God. Intention must be purified, so nothing remains but the aspiration to please God. The heart must be trained to collaborate with and give expression to spiritual aspiration. The heart's association with the aspirations of the false self or ego must be discontinued. When, God willing, intentionality and the heart have been purified, then, by the grace of God, qualities of spiritual etiquette, such as patience, perseverance, forbearance, compassion, and forgiveness, come to ascendancy. These qualities have, God willing, a transformative effect on passion and anger, and as a result, passion and anger come to serve spiritual purposes. Under these circumstances, the only aspiration of passion is to seek, know, love, and serve God. Furthermore, the aspiration of anger becomes a tendency to protect this spiritual passion from and defend against anything which would undermine or corrupt it. If God wishes, in later stages of the maturation of spiritual aspiration, 
different capacities within that potential become experientially active. Although the focus of those experiences always remains God, the structural character, so to speak, of that focus undergoes various kinds of transformation. Sufi masters speak of some of these transformations in terms of gnosis, witnessing, and love. In each case, the experience of divinity changes. Each kind of experiencing involves its own mode of spiritual etiquette. On all levels, God responds to us in accordance with the character of our spiritual aspiration. When spiritual aspiration is at low ebb, God's way of relating to us will reflect the character of that kind of aspiration. As the quality intensity of spiritual aspiration undergoes various developmental transformations, so too does God's way of responding to us reflect those spiritual transitions. In reality, God does not change from beginning to end during the journey of development or unfolding of spiritual aspiration. The nature of divinity always is what divinity is. However, as spiritual aspiration goes through various transformations, our essential capacity becomes sensitive and receptive to the modalities of experiencing and realizing divinity, which are consonant with the condition of our aspiration. Consequently, the way God responds to us is merely a reflection of the way we relate to divinity. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.